I'm going to let you read the psalm passage on your own individually and focus on these two passages that we have from the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis was uh, compiled from different documents put together. There's two stories of creation. There's one in chapter 1, there's one in chapter 2, written by different people in different centuries. Uh, and so we're going to read a little section of each of them. First of all, from Genesis chapter 1. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the cattle according to their kinds, and everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, upon which is on the face of all the earth, Every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Then from Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. Well, uh, they did eventually find a helper fit for him, uh, so the story has a happy ending there. We just had to cut it off somewhere. But um, we're looking here today in the fifth week of this series on the Good Samaritan. What does it mean to be a Good Samaritan? first week we looked at the, the story itself and how it's a bit of a surprise because the two people that you would expect to help the man who was beat up just passed him on by. And the one person you wouldn't expect, the dreaded Samaritan, was the one who was the hero of the story. We then looked at what does it mean to be a good Samaritan to people who are sick, people who have AIDS or malaria or different illnesses. We looked at what does it mean to be uh, working for justice in this world. And then to be a good Samaritan to the poor last week. We looked at that and talked about that. Today we look at what does it mean to be a good Samaritan to the planet? 
to God's creation. You might say, well, Bill, that's a big jump between the, the story of the Good Samaritan, the guy beat up by the road, and talking about the environment. But I don't know that it's that big of a jump because our planet, brothers and sisters, is beat up and bleeding and is lying in a ditch. And it desperately needs people to care about it. Before the word stewardship was ever applied to money, it was applied first to the earth. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But often we are so disengaged with nature, we fail to see nature as the beautiful gift of God that it is. We take things for granted like, like just pure clean water. You know, the earth is covered with 70% water, but only 1% of it is drinkable. And the fact that we have it readily available, this clean water in our lives. You know, one of the great things about our young people going down to Mexico on the, the Mexico trip is that they get to live for a week without running water. So when they come back here and they walk into their shower, the first shower that they've had in a week, Wayne is laughing here because he knows that feeling of, of just your first shower back from Mexico, how much you appreciate there's water in your house. It's right there, it's water, it's amazing. We forget to be grateful for it. The UN General Secretary said that the next world war will not be about oil, but will be about water. It's not to be wasted, but seen as sacred. Same thing when you go to Malawi, and you notice how a village is transformed by the presence of a shallow well. Women who used to have to walk miles with a five-gallon can of water on their head now can go right there and get the water in their village, all just because somebody gave $300 to make that happen, transform the life of their village and those people. So let's get our bearings here this morning. The first thing, and by the way, last week I said, you're not going to learn anything new. Same this week, sorry. Nothing new, just going to be reminded of some really important things that you don't want to forget. So the first thing that you already know is that this is God's world, not yours. I'm sure you may have a piece of paper that is the deed to your house, and it has your name on it, maybe a bank's name. But the real name that should be plastered big over that piece of paper is God. Because the Bible tells us that everything that we have belongs to God. I heard the story of a New York law firm that was engaged in settling an estate and they discovered that the estate owned a piece of property in Louisiana. So they wrote to a New Orleans attorney, asked him to do a title check on the property and to give them an opinion. In due course, they received the title opinion, which traced the title all the way back to 1803. But they were still concerned that there might be some litigation about this property. And so they wrote to the attorney again in New Orleans and said, can you trace it back even farther, back farther than 1803? And he wrote them back this letter. Gentlemen, with reference to your request, the title be traced back beyond 1803. I submit the following information. In the year 1803, the Louisiana Territory was acquired by the USA by purchase from the Republic of France who in turn had acquired the title from the Spanish crown by conquest, 
who in turn acquired the title by the discovery of a sailor named Christopher Columbus, who sailed under the authority of Queen Isabella, who obtained sanction of the Pope for the voyage, who obtained his authority as the Vicar of Jesus Christ, who was the son of Almighty God, who made Louisiana. <laughs> now that's a title search. You take it back far enough, and you're always going to end with God. Take it back far enough, and that's where you will end. You are a trustee of all the things that you own, your money, property, and of this planet. The Bible says that we're supposed to have dominion over this planet. Dominion does not mean ownership or even unrestricted use. It means you are to serve as a trustee to take care of somebody else's property in a way that will benefit them. Parents have dominion over their kids. It's a parent's job to take, make sure their kids are taken care of well. And when you take your kids to school, you transfer dominion of your children to the people who are running the school, the teachers and the staff. And you expect when you pick them up that they'll be in as good a shape as when you drop them off. You expect them to be taken care of. In the same way, dominion over nature is given in Genesis, and it does not translate to neglect, license, or destruction. God loves this world that God has created. God loves it. It says that it was very good. God, you can also say, loves variety, loves different things. Someone said, what if when God was creating the world, he thought it was too much trouble to make mountains and valleys, so everything just looked like Kansas? What if after creating the squirrel and the carp and the warthog, he said, that's enough? What if when it, he got to Friday, he said, thank me, it's Friday, and went out for cocktails? And he quit before he made humans. But that's not the story of creation. God loves variety. You know, because of the process of evolution, uh, which is I, the way I believe is how God brought the world into creation here, use that process that we call evolution, scientists say that there are currently known to be 300,000 species of beetles. 300,000 different species of beetles. You know, if it was up to me, I would have thought 12 was enough for 13. But no, God evidently believes that there needs to be 300,000 different types of beetles. And I don't think he created extra ones just so we could kill some off and have some to spare. Somehow it seems to believe that's how it's supposed to be. God entrusts creation to us. Just like when I was a kid and I got my driver's license when I turned 16, first Saturday after I was 16, and my dad takes the keys to the family car, 1965 Ford Country Squire station wagon, far from a babe magnet. And he, he held the keys out and he said, Billy, I want you to remember something. This is my car. It's not your car. It's my car. And I want you bringing it back with scratches and dents and all beat up. I want you to treat it well because it's my car. 
God has handed the keys to creation to this planet over to us. Said that we're in charge. We're to have dominion of it. Don't bring it back to me with a hole blown in the ozone layer. Don't bring it back to me all polluted and messed up. Take care of my creation, he says. The other thing that we need to understand is that the care of the earth is not a political issue. Politics brings inaction to the very place that we need action. We don't need to spend our time on any more endless debates about the cause of global warming. There's been enough research. Science has spoken. It is not the time for debate. It's the time for action, to get down and to do something and to begin to change. Albert Schweitzer was a theologian. He spent a lot of time writing books about God. You know, philosophy, theology, wrote all of these intellectual things. And then one day he just took the book and he closed it. He said, no, no more theology, no more philosophy. I'm going to Africa to build a hospital to help poor people. The time for talk and writing is over. The time for action is now. We don't understand that we're living in a situation in which things are changing, but we don't quite realize it's gradual, so we don't notice it. It's a little bit like the story you've heard of the frog. If you take a frog and you throw it into a pot of boiling water, the frog will jump out immediately. But if you put the frog in water that's room temperature and slowly raise the temperature, slowly, 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 the frog will die without even realizing that it is in danger. And so we can see things chipping away in our world, chipping away in our planet here. When's the last time you've considered that there are no more elms on Elm Street, no chestnuts on Chestnut Street, there's no more caribou in Caribou, Maine, or elk in Elk, California. The blue pike, the most numerous fish in the Great Lakes, is now extinct. When I was in college in Los Angeles, I watched the the pine trees of Lake Arrowhead die from the hideous smog produced from the Los Angeles basin. When I entered college, the average person dumped 2.6 pounds of garbage a day. Now it's up to 4.6, almost doubled. When I was ordained, one in 19 women in America got breast cancer. Now it's one in six or seven. There's a huge increase in the amount of children that have asthma and are dealing with that terrible disease. I'm no scientist, I'm just a preacher, but even I know that the way that we're treating the world is killing us. One of my favorite authors is Jared Diamond, who teaches in the geography department at UCLA. He wrote the, a classic book called Guns, Germs, and Steel to answer the question, why do some societies prosper and others not? And then after that, he followed it with a book called Collapse, which tried to answer the question, why do some societies totally implode and collapse on themselves, whereas others do not? And one of, the, one of the places that he writes about is Easter Island off the coast of Chile in South America. That's the island where they have those giant stone statues, those tiki kind of head things that are there. And they, they loved these things. They made hundreds of them. And to move them, they cut down trees and they used their trees as rollers to be able to move these statues around. And they eventually got to where they cut down every tree on Easter Island. He said, I wonder what the last guy who cut the last tree down was thinking when he did that. 
when he did that thing, which led to the collapse of their society, dwindled down to almost 200 people at one point. We, when we don't take care of the place, it collapses in on us. We are chipping away. Someday we'll say, where are the trees? Why is it that even more people get diseases? Where are the bees gone? And that little sort of incremental change is chipped away. Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. You may be the change that God wants. Let politics do its own thing. You can start right now by being the change. We began this series with a quote from Helen Keller, who said, I can't do everything, but I can do something. And I won't let the thing I cannot do keep me from doing the thing that I can do. The earth is God's and everything in it. I put a little sheet in your bulletin which has some practical suggestions of some steps that you as an individual can take to help this. We've been given the keys to a car that belongs to God. And then finally, we have two footprints. We have the thing that we talk about a lot called the carbon footprint. That's our, how much energy we're using here on this planet. But we have another footprint that is called the spiritual footprint. And that is, that is the image that what we're doing in this world to be connected to God's kingdom. That's our spiritual footprint. Sometimes we get a little bit twisted. And one of the ways that Christianity has gotten a little off track is the concept that our whole life on earth is simply to prepare us to go to heaven. That this, this is just a temporary thing, and what really matters is when we die and our spirit goes to be with God. You know that old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, you know, I'm going up yonder. You know, that kind of theology actually is not Christian. It's Platonism. It's from Plato. It's dualism. Spirit and matter, and they're separate. Christianity talks about the resurrection of God's creation, the body, the earth. That's why Jesus said, you know, he said, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in heaven when we die, but make this place the way that God wants it to be. Make it part of the kingdom. That's what our job is to do. So what we call love is actually a reverence for life. That was Schweitzer's favorite phrase. Have a reverence for life for this place that God has given us, for the animals and the plants, for everything that is here. You show your love for God by loving God's creation and taking care of what he did. The earth is God's and the fullness thereof. And right now, it's lying in a ditch and it needs a hand from those who can give it. Amen.